morning, everybody. I'm Matt Hadfield. I'm a, a current uh, third year uh, medical oncology fellow at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, soon to be an, an attending, uh, focusing in phase one early drug development. Uh, super excited to have this conversation today with Dr. Uh, Amadi and Dr. Nielsen of GenMab and Abby, as well as my colleague, Dr. Tanasia. I think just to get it started, maybe we can start with just some introductions. Sure. I'm uh, Jackie Nielsen. I'm the therapeutic area for hematology at Abdi. Um, PhD by training, trained at Northwestern Medical School in Chicago here. I've been here for 25 years or so. Um, and yeah, worked on a lot of molecules in hematology, but so far, Abkhurdamal is my favorite. Alrighty, Tayyab Mali, I'm the Chief Medical Officer at GEMMAP. I'm an MD-PhD from Germany. I originally did my training um, on a Volker Dia, who's kind of like one of the quintessential um, leaders in the lymphoma field. Um, then came to the States to do my postdoc in Boston and then ended up uh, doing my training at Penn and then later on staying on faculty at Penn um, as an oncologist where I was actually seeing mainly patients with lymphoma and CLL before I went into the industry, um, initially to J&J, where, you know, I was involved in, in a number of drugs that are approved now, um, namely Buvica, which I led the first approval, Daratoma, which I led the entire development, um, Amivantamab, which I led the discovery, Takedamatakdesamat, which I led the discovery, Tiftak at Gemmap, where I'm now for seven years and now EPCO. It's great. I'm Alan Kritha. I'm one of the third year fellows at uh, Roswell Park. I'm also going to be doubly trained in hematology and oncology. Um, I have also signed up for a job offer to lead a myeloma program um, in Jefferson's Einstein, Einstein in Philadelphia. So oh, you're coming to Philly. Congratulations. All righty. Congratulations. You're going to be at the same Congrats. institution as my assistant was. Very good. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I guess to get started, um, you know, a lot of interesting things to talk about today, but maybe we could just start with talking about F-cortamab, the mechanism of action, you know, obviously a novel compound that that works a little bit differently than, than immunotherapeutic agents in the past um, with, with some very interesting um, details. So maybe we could just start with hearing a little bit about that. Epcorilamab is a um, bispecific antibody. Um, it's on the um, GEMAP dual body platform, which, you know, has some unique features. Um, that that might be important, but uh, broadly speaking, the idea is to to um, create antibody structures that mimic um, the behavior of an IgG one, um, but um, you know um, have uh, FAPs against two different targets. In this particular case, uh, one arm of the antibody binds um, C three, which is on T cells, um, and the other one um, binds CD twenty, which is on B cells. And by having um, these two arms, what you end up doing is you are um, bringing in close proximity a T cell to a B cell. And in the case of patients with lymphoma, this is predominantly their tumor. Um, the antibody itself is FC silent, meaning it doesn't have any FC mediated functions, which is important. Um, and and by creating proximity, you essentially um, trigger a reaction. Um, that frankly ought not to happen, but still does happen, um, and that the T cell then starts killing the B cell. So it's a T cell redirector, um, as there are many, many others in development and approved now. Um, it's a relatively new space, um, I think, triggered by the recognition that T cells have a profound ability to kill hematologic cells, and, and it's a very exciting area. What is unique about Epcovidamab is um, beyond the fact that, that it's uh, the 
the one that the most closest uh, follows the, the IgG physiology, meaning that it really looks like an IgG molecule, which is a function of the dual body platform, um, is also that is the first one that was introduced uh, subcutaneously. And the reason for that was the, the um, observation in, in, in the early non-clinical safety uh, models that we did, that uh, the, the peak PK uh, would be modulated in a way that you would avoid it. And, and that was important to us at that point um, because we were working from the hypothesis, which ended up being true, that um, peak PK was what was driving high cytokine release levels, which is the predominant safety issue with this mechanism of action. And interestingly, so it is such a novel drug that's, it's, you know, we, we've, we're starting to see more and more T-cell engagers being used, bispecific antibodies being used. And, and particularly, this is a subcutaneous formulation, which, you know, in the past, we've seen things like rituximab go from infusional to subcutaneous. But have you, have you noticed in the, and we're going to talk about this more in depth, uh, the, the phase one, two study, but have you noticed any uh, novel toxicities that you would attribute either to the, the mechanism of action or the, the delivery mechanism that has, hasn't been seen with other similar molecules? I guess the short answer is no. Um, I think in the the way drug development records therapy or the treatment related or adverse events is um, or treatment margin adverse events is anybody that gets anything during the course of the trial is it's it's recorded. So you get things like upper respiratory tract infection because older patients uh, have a cold. Right. So um, what you generally see is um, GI uh, related in an older population. You'll see, you know, infections in an older population. The disease itself, you know, makes people prone to infections as well because they're immunocompromised. So um, and then obviously when you're using a subcutaneous injection, uh, you might see a little bit of um, injection site reactions. But in general, I would say that the, the, the AE profile is, is pretty manageable. I would say, like, you know, broadly speaking, if you think about T-cell redirection, there, there, um, there are two buckets of, of AEs that are related to the mechanism of action. One is um, uh, cytokine release syndrome, meaning um, through the activation of T-cells um, in the process of them killing the B-cell, in this particular case, the B-cell, it doesn't really matter, um, you, you release gamma interferon. And then what you what ends up having is a cascade. Gamma interferon stimulates other cells uh, to release other cytokines. And so you get this cytokine release, broadly speaking. Um, and, and the symptoms of cytokine release are, are well understood and characterized. They are fever as the first one. Um, if it gets a little bit more extreme, it can be fever and hypotension or fever and a minimum requirement of oxygen. And then um, the grading follows that logic when to the degree that the hypotension becomes more difficult to manage, uh, requiring potentially pressors or the oxygen demand um, gets significant. That's the first bucket of, of, of uh, AEs that are related to the mechanism of action. EPCO is not different. Um, the second bucket is um, a ill understood phenomenon of neurological symptoms, subsumized under the term ICANS. Um, and it's really ill understood. Really, and there's no good explanation except that some kind of hand vague idea of that that you activate T cells, presumably CD4 for this particular toxicity, and that they have some weird interaction um, that leads to confusion, tra uh, transient usually uh, headaches. Um, you know what we now summarize. I can it's not necessarily what we used to think of neurotoxicity. So it's basically now every term that falls under this bucket of the system organ class. Um, so headaches, confusion, but it can be can, can be problematic to the point that people are really, you know, unable to communicate um, in, in very severe cases. 
um, not with EPCO so far. Um, so that's kind of broadly speaking. And then there's a unique third bucket, I would say, to the CD20 targeting, which is neutropenia, which is probably real as well, which is true for rituximab as well, and all it says is like that there's some biology that we don't really understand between CD20 uh, positive cells and, and neutrophils. Um, these kind of like the three buckets. So there's the, in that range, um, EPCO behaves like like the other ones in the class. There's really nothing to to the subcutaneous administration, and I, I want to correct you. It's not really formulated. Uh, rituximab was formulated to be I mean, it was basically a chemical modification. It used uh, an enzyme to to allow it to be uh, administered uh, subcutaneously. It's very similar to daratuma in its subcutaneous uh, infusion. With EPCO, it's purely administration of subcutaneous. The antibody is in the same solution as an antibody that would be given IV. It is just so potent that the amount of protein that you need to give to a patient is relatively limited. For EPCO, it's 48 milligram total um, that you can actually administer that small amount in a very small volume um, under the skin, and it gets absorbed really well. Yeah. I would just, I, I, I think I would just, reiterate that what we see is is really class effects across either anti-CD20 or T-cell engagers. And we've been developing upcritimab to be kind of patient-friendly uh, and really using the step up doses to mitigate any um, any grade three or four CRS or ICANs that we might see. So there is a bit of intelligent trial design uh, to, to mitigate, you know, in-class effects. It sounds great. And to just add on to that, could you just describe the trial design? The current data that is leading to 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 the has led to the registration of um uh, of up in diffuse HBs and 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 also the data set that is now being submitted uh, to global health authorities in follicular pharma comes out of a um, out of an expansion out of expansion code of the original first human trial. So the first human trial was ex expanding the doses, um, and then once it settled on the recommended phase two dose. It uh, it went into uh, distinct populations that would meet criteria for an unmet medical need for diffuse such PCR. This is patients who had two prior lines of therapy and are not eligible for transplantation. Um, and for follicular pharma, this was uh, patients who um, who had also two prior lines of therapy, so third line patients in both settings, um, broadly understood as patients for which there is no really well defined standard of care. Um, what uh, Jacqueline was referring to is that um, the initial step-up dosing, all of these drugs use a step-up dosing, meaning they start at relatively low doses and then in, in one or two steps get to the, the, the uh, recommended dose that, uh, to get the full effect of the drug. And that is meant to mitigate the cytokine release. Um, that in a subsequent uh, iteration of the study, we also generated data that helped us uh, to understand how to further improve the safety profile, such that we significantly were able to reduce the cytokine release profile and, and, and completely abrogate uh, any evidence of ICANs. Um, and that is um, uh, through to, to a particular PK modeling that allowed us to understand that in follicular lymphomas, for example, specifically, um, a second step up introduced you know, basically a more gradual increase over a period of time would actually um, really fundamentally change the safety profile such that at this point, now um, the drug has a um, has mainly grade one CRS, which basically patients only have fever. There's a less than 10% rate of grade two, uh, meaning people who require some infusion of fluids, uh, 500 cc's. Um, both of these things are easily managed in an outpatient setting. There's no grade three, meaning there's no need to hospitalize, and there's also no 
ICANs, meaning there's no risk of, of um, potential uh, neurologic toxicities with that step up dosing. And that's that's very important um, because the ambition, of course, and the, 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 the aspiration for a drug from the very beginning also because of the secure administration was that um, to, to, to provide an easily administrable um, medicine that can be um, provided to patients in all kinds of settings, not only in specialized hospitals. That's great. And interestingly, in the phase one study, did you do uh, inpatient admissions uh, for the first few patients? Just to, because that is that is becoming such a, a thing, you know, the with a lot of these bi-specific antibodies and and um, uh, novel uh, INK cell based therapies. That there's there's so many, you know, inpatient hospitalizations that, that that's a unique aspect of this drug that you don't require that because it really is a, a logistical hurdle a lot of uh, a lot of people are facing. Yeah. So the reality is this: you have to dial the clock back a little bit. Right? Um, so EPCO was started in 2018. It was actually the last of the five CD3C20s that went to the clinic. Um, the first CD3C20s that went into the clinic were in end of 2015. Um, at that point, the knowledge base, broadly speaking, on, on how to safely manage this, this, this set of symptoms that we spoke about, CRS and ICONS, was very limited. Uh, all experience came from CARTs, where these... Um, Symptoms are uh, significantly more profound. Um, so cytokine release syndrome is much more severe. ICANS is much more severe. Um, and so uh, for these very reasons, essentially everyone, not essentially everyone, was mandated by health authorities for appropriate reasons um, to require hospitalization to provide appropriate um, observation until we started to understand how to better manage, which I think is fair that the community in general has learned this, to better manage this. Um, and also, as we just uh, alluded to, um, understood how to better mitigate it uh, through the administration of fluids and steroids, and, and for example, diffuse HPSA, or and um, through to the modification to the step-up dosing. And, and so now you're getting to a situation where the weight is lower, um, the severity is lower, um, the experience in how to manage this is better, so we, we better understand how to manage it, and so it becomes much more... Um, uh, realistic to 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 apply this uh, safely because in the end, I mean, patient safety is, is the first one. But I understand, I mean, from a healthcare resource point of view, it's a it's a very important question to be answered. Perfect. I mean, I, the short answer to your question is yes. I mean, we always try to hospitalize when when we don't understand what the what the safety profile is going to look like. But I think the team has done a lot of work moving into. Uh, pre-regulatory state to get us to a place where hopefully we can um, bring this molecule in a completely outpatient setting in the future. Would you like to touch upon some of the major study findings and how that would compare to some of the other T-cell engagers? In particular, um, the I mean, NHL1 study had lots of arms. We've already used, uh, we've already used the DLBCL uh, cohort LBCL cohort for for our current approval. And what we what we're I think discussing today is the follicular lymphoma cohort. Um, patients in this cohort were very heavily pretreated. Um, we use the the term pod twenty four to mean patients who progress off of chemotherapy and within twenty four months. So in follicular lymphoma, generally patients get five six years median after their first therapy. Um, this cohort of patients was pretty heavily enriched with patients who were either refractory to their first therapy, refractory to the two prior lines of therapy, um, or uh, progressed within two years, which is, they're all kind of um, 
markers of maybe less indolent follicular lymphoma. So these patients were, were in need of something a little bit stronger, which is why obviously they opted to go on a clinical trial. Um, in that population, we were able to do an 82% overall response rate uh, with 63% CRs. Uh, in follicular lymphoma, obviously it's an indolent disease and you don't aim for, uh, you aim for durability, but CRs are a very good predictor of that. Um, and so our, we're very, very um, encouraged by the rapidity of response. You can see a median time to CR is one and a half months, which is really driven by the first three staging of patients. And um, between that and the step up dosing, we really think we have something strong we can offer patients, but also in a way that it can be administered across practice settings. In terms of comparisons to the to the field, as, as Tahi stated, there's no real standard of care in follicular lymphoma, particularly third line, and particularly for patients with this level of aggressiveness in their disease. Um, so uh, across the uh, practice care settings, you can you can reach for potentially a bispecific or another T cell engager. Uh, those come with uh, some, in particular, the CAR Ts come with a lot of logistical challenges and they're not available to a lot of patients. There's also a fair amount of, um, of limitations to where you can access CAR Ts in the space. Uh, and a lot of patients with an indolent disease don't really want to opt for the level of hospitalization and rigor that is required for, for moving towards a, a, a T cell engager. So I think we have a, a pretty good option for for um, really deep remissions in, in some of the most uh, aggressive phenotypes of this disease and moving forward, potentially um, all, all lymphoma patients. Yeah, and, and I think the only thing to add is like, you know, if you think about the class of CA3C20, it's like in follicular lymphoma, they, from an efficacy point of view, they tend to behave very similar. Um, that probably is a reflection of the functionality of T-cells in follicular lymphoma, to be honest. And if you such B-cells, it's a little bit more easier to see differences between the constructs, right? So there you can see, you know, um, if you look at the data for all four, <clears throat> you know, Epcorinum um, has the highest response rate and then the high, uh, higher CR rate um, in the cost comparison. This is always dangerous, cost comparisons. In follicular lymphoma, they are more or less the same, but here I think it's important to note that with the optimization the, the safety profile of epigrinomab is extremely competitive. It's actually the lowest rate of grade two and above for all of them. Um, and, and it's the only one um, at this point that is administered subcutaneously, which we discussed before, has uh, significant advantages in terms of convenience for patients. Right? And it's basically a difference between several hours in, a, in, in whatever setting versus um, you know a minute. Well, it's never a minute because you have to go to the provider, but <laughs> nonetheless. Uh, it, it's a it's a significantly more convenient way of doing it, things. No, it's a great point. I mean, at the ASCO Quality Care Symposium, there was uh, several sessions focused on time toxicity to patients. Yeah, so inf absolutely. infusional drugs versus subcutaneous drugs. I mean, there, there's there's a lot of quantifiable ways it's better for patients. Um, and on infusion centers, you know, less less cost of staff, less cost of administration. Um, those are phenomenal results in, in a heavily pretreated population. Um, any uh, plans for further expansion cohorts in, in other uh, disease states? I think we've seen 
we've seen proof of concept in, in most B-cell malignancies, obviously. Um, we have a third line approval in DLBCL. We're moving into second line and front line with combination therapy, uh, which we're very, very excited about uh, and, and trying to improve on cure rates in DLBCL. Um, for follicular lymphoma, we similarly are moving into earlier lines of therapy with, with combinations to try to, to deepen and prolong those first remissions. Um, and there's a lot, uh, we just released our data in CLL this year at IWCLL, very exciting data and very heavily pretreated patients. CLL has been uh, a disease state that I've spent a lot of time in. So very excited to have um, options for patients that, that where there really are no options in the BTKI, BCL2 um, uh, progressor or doubly exposed patients. But that's probably not the only place we're going to we're going to land in CLL as well, considering it's it's a, a well, my, in my opinion, a better anti-CD20. So it could go wherever anti-CD20s are. I think they broadly speaking, right? I mean, I think the, the promise of this new class that is emerging, uh, and I think about this as a class, of course, initially, is is really... Um, it, it it combines the 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 unprecedented and it's really and the term unprecedented sometimes gets overused but this these efficacy results for TISA engagement generally speaking now we're speaking about lymphoma we could talk about myeloma too by the way um, but the 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 the, 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 the efficacy results for TISA engagement are without a precedent there's never been drugs before that had like an eighty percent sixty percent CR this is like you know unheard of as a single agent and refractory patient um, but the promise of this class is that um, you can actually combine it in contrast of CARTs. You can combine it with other modalities. You can combine it with letalidomide, which we're doing. You can combine it with chemotherapy, which we're doing, um, for different reasons, right? You can combine it with chemotherapy because chemotherapy debulks, and now you have a better immune control. You can combine it with letalidomide because letalidomide probably in some weird way enhances T-cell function, and then you get synergism, and we have shown that in the clinic already. Um, and as you combine it, you can move it into the earlier settings. And the ambition, the goal has to be to move this mechanism into frontline. And so together with Avi, I think we're working on a what is a very aggressive, very comprehensive clinical development, um, moving this very systematically along the lines. We have already a phase three ongoing in, in the relapse setting for DFSH B cell. We have a phase three ongoing in frontline in combination with chemotherapy with ARCHOP um, in, in DFSH B cell. Um, you know, we, we just announced that we are going to start working um, also with, with uh, coll collaborative study groups on doing a, a combination in frontline for patients with diffuse HP who are elderly, who are not candidates for, for full art shop. Um, we're generating data for, for um, you know, cardiac uh, cardiovascular impaired patients who are really not candidates for anticyclin. Uh, and, and if it's actually be in frontline. And also, we announced that we're going to do like a study in relapse uh, setting with, with lenalidomide, um, really comprehensively addressing all spaces of the FUSH B cell. Similarly, in follicular lymphoma, there's already an ongoing study um, in the relapse setting with lenalidomide and bituximab, uh, with data that we had presented that was really unprecedented. With now in combination, uh, CR rates way over 90%, like in 98%, um, which basically means that one patient on your study didn't respond. Um, you know, it's like, you know, there's like you know, 100, it's like finite. Huh? Sometimes people misunderstand this, like, you cannot go higher than 100. Um, and now we are we, we are generating data in frontline and, and or in particular former and, and I think Jackie already mentioned that we also have data in CLL, the same kind of, broadly speaking, <clears throat> it's a CD20 targeted. Um, mechanism. Um, it has a play in all diseases that are CD20 positive and 
you know, there's a practicality to how drugs are being developed and the time it takes. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but the ambition is clearly to 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 um, you know position EPCO as a as a main mechanism across the spectrum of BSM malignancies and across all lands. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that it's EPCOR core therapy. That's that's where the team is trying to <laughs> is trying to set the tone. One last question, if we have the time for it. Yeah, I was wondering if there's any major exclusion criteria that you had in your trials or any patients that cannot be considered a candidate for this therapy in terms of their comorbidities. Well, I mean, they're, 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 they're no direct. I mean, they obviously always, every trial has inclusion, exclusion criteria. Um, usually in clinical trials, they're around performance status. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, I think the only other inclusion exclusion criteria that's probably uh, worth mentioning is that um, because for unclear impact on the safety, we initially exclude patients with um, transplant. Um This is something that we, I think we're now exploring. Um, very gradually, where we now allow patients to come on, on studies who had a prior alloys and transit, but um, they have no prior, uh, uh, no, no existing uh, graft versus host um, that requires immune suppression. Um, so, you know, beyond that, I think um, actually one of the main differentiating aspects of these biospecifics is that that they um, that they are available and can be administered to patients. Um, who may otherwise not be candidates for CARTs because of their um, faility or, or um, other preconditions that, that preclude them from getting involved on CARTs or, or getting access to CARTs. So, I mean, as you cross-compare, um, that's true for all biospecifics, by the way. Um, the patients who came onto these trials, um, in many cases, were either not eligible for CARTs or in about uh, half of the patients actually had prior cards. And so that's also the context in which one has to understand cross-compare data. It's a significantly more pre-treated, a significantly more frail patient population um, than, than the card therapies, uh, including the clinical trials. And I think this is the promise that this is truly a a much more egalitarian way of, 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 of approaching the disease than, than, a, than a scientifically very interesting, but nonetheless a very exclusive approach that can only be uh, provided in very specialized centers under specialized uh, care and, and to hand-selected patients. That's very exciting. And actually, I was listening to another lecture on DLBCL yesterday, and there were some debates about whether some of the biospecifics can be used as a bridge to CAR-T. Do you think that that's also a possibility for EPCOR? Sure. I mean, there, 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 there are going to be all kinds of uh, uh, investigations uh, in the community to 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 figure out how to um, use these mechanisms for whichever practice you choose to do. I personally would say that's probably not the uh, long term. I don't think that's going to be the place for the drug. The um, general philosophy of drug development that you provide op optionalities um, so that physicians and patients um you know have uh, different kind of opportunities to benefit from from novel therapies i mean i think to tell his point over time we we would hope our combination therapies can stand up to to the long term outcomes that that we see with with carti i know to 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 quote tahi there are people who are they believe in the therapy because it, they've been around long enough to demonstrate um, outcomes that are predictive by the outcomes that we show. But 
you know, we need a little bit more time to to demonstrate there, but. Perfect. Well, thank you both for joining us today. This is this is really interesting stuff to talk about and, and obviously phenomenal results in a patient population that really needs a, a new therapy. And and especially the subcutaneous delivery mechanism is you can't underscore that enough. I mean, that's huge for patients and, and that's going to make things easier for infusion centers too. And it's really going to make it more uh, applicable to centers all over the world as opposed to just in large academic medical centers where they're they're more trained to deal with these things. So very exciting stuff. And, and thank you both so much for, for joining us. You're Thank you. Thanks. Very nice to Thanks meet you. For...